0: You're listening to the Oldham Podcast Network. Welcome to 30 Days of Stories on the Underground Railroad in Kentucky, produced by the Oldham County History Center. I'm your host, Bob Fortunato, and I'm a volunteer for the Oldham County History Center. The Underground Railroad refers to the efforts of enslaved African-Americans to gain their freedom by escaping bondage. Wherever there were enslaved African-Americans, there were people eager to escape. The first step on the Underground Railroad began when that freedom seeker stepped away from the place where they were enslaved, a home, a farm, a field, a steamboat. Many freedom seekers began their journey unaided following the North Star, and many completed their self-emancipation without assistance. But each decade leading up to the Civil War in the United States, where slavery was legal, there was an increase in active efforts to assist escape. Kentucky became the best option available for fugitives to escape from Tennessee, Alabama, and other southern states, including Kentucky because of the 664-mile border of the Ohio River, allowing for more potential to reach the free soil of Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio. Kentucky became central to slave escapes by virtue of its physical and political geography. For that reason, Kentucky and the states along its northern border became central to the Underground Railroad, a battleground where freedom was tested, and stories of courage and sacrifice were made. Our guest reader today is Janine Kreinbrink. Janine Kreinbrink is the president and senior partner in K&V Cultural Resources Management, LLC, which she co-founded in 2011 with Doug Van Stroh. She has combined a, a career in cultural resource management with conducting educational and public programs in archaeology, preservation and history. Her archaeological career be- began at Northern University, Northern Kentucky University, and in volunteering at BCM at which she has been an associate archaeologist since 1981. She began a full-time career as an archaeologist in 1986 working urban archaeology in Covington. Janine obtained her master's degree in 1992 from the University of Cincinnati. Janine helped found and has served on the board of the James A. Romage Civil War Museum since its opening in 2005. She serves on the board of directors for the Friends of Bog Bone. For many years, Janine has also taught as an adjunct professor to the Anthropology and History Departments at Northern Kentucky University from 1997 to 2014. Janine was the archaeologist that worked on the deconstruction of the Anderson Slave Jail from Mason County to its reconstruction at the Freedom Center in Cincinnati, where it serves as a featured exhibit. Janine and Doug have worked with the Oldham County History Center on the Henry Bibb archeological project since August 2005. They also supervised public archeology span digs, field schools, artifact washing workshops at the Trimble County Bibb Gatewood site near Bedford. Born and raised in Kenton County, Kentucky, Janine and her husband, Anthony, have lived in South Carolina and Ohio. They built an earth-sheltered house in Boone County in 1994 and have lived there since. Their daughter and her family live in Austin, Texas. Today, Janine will be reading Slave Trader John Anderson and the Anderson Slave Jai. Among your friends and
1: acquaintances, the Anderson Slave Pen the Kentucky Slave trade and the enslaved persons who were held there. The Anderson Slave Pen is a log building with barred windows on display at the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center in Cincinnati, Ohio. Have you been there to see it yet? If not, it's definitely worth a visit. This log building was someone's house first, most likely a a one-and-a-half-story house. It had a 10-foot-wide chimney and fireplace, a tall, narrow entry door with a transom window and small windows on the long sides, and none in the gable ends. Then the second owner raised it up to a full two-story, inserted flat iron bars in the windows, and converted it to a slave jail or pen for keeping a slave people prisoner on their way to being sold. Many people think of a building as static, a house, a barn or in this case, a holding facility for enslaved persons. Buildings, however, have much to tell. They're not static, but evolve through time and use. Locked into the walls is information about the people who lived, worked, and perhaps died there. Buildings have history. Their structure provides information on changes in function, use history, and chronology. Buildings reflect culture. The person who built it did so from a particular cultural, ethnic, and or economic perspective. Who they were and where they came from influenced the style of the building. Economic status may have influenced the building's style, size, details of ornamentation, and so forth. Subsequent owners and persons who passed through the building on a daily basis also affected it. Buildings do not exist as isolated structures. They are part of a property, a farm, and they are associated with owners, tenants, occupants, enslaved persons, and others associated with its past. Historical research provides a context within which to understand the relationships among these inhabitants and their larger world. Primary and secondary sources inform us about actions, relationships, enslaved and owner, women and children, transitions and changes, and provide a backdrop for the architectural and archaeological investigations. Artifacts found within and beneath the building provide cultural information on those who discarded or lost them. Kitchen and household objects, personal items such as coins or buttons or jewelry, lead to insights on gender, ethnicity, economic status, and or ownership. Artifacts can provide a check on the historical record. They may support or contradict known historical records. Together, the archival records and archives artifacts of the Anderson and tell us a unique and powerful story. So let's kind of begin at the beginning of this building based on the available evidence from research and the archaeology. Let's begin. A man named Moses Frazee bought 100 acres for a man named Lewis Craig in 1804. Frazee either built the log routes or took over an existing log house on this one hundred acre tract. Actually at this time we probably think he built it. This time the building contained a ten foot wide chimney with a cooking fireplace at the north end of the building. It had a single doorway off center on the east facade. The doorway included a rectangular transom, and the door had small brass doorknobs probably mounted with a surface lock, and at least one doorknob was found in the archaeology. The doorway may have been constructed to reflect federal stylistic conventions popular in the early 19th century. The building had at least one window with glass panes. Flat glass analysis from the archaeology describes the recovery of over 300 square inches of very thin flat aqua glass that is likely from at least one window. Moses Frazee, and we'll come back to him with a little more detail later on, He sold the 100 acres to a man named John W. Anderson in 1825. Anderson was involved in both horse racing and slave dealing. Maysville Eagle newspaper advertisements, for example, from 1827, indicate that Anderson was stabling his racehorses and thoroughbreds at the property near Germantown by 1827. Anderson bought the property in 1825, but in 1830, it appears that he was still living in his previous farm. His parents, Worsham and Miss Anaya Anderson, were living on the 100-acre farm and were very likely living in the log building as a house during this time period. John W. Anderson built a brick, quote-unquote, mansion house, that is uh, described in probate records, in the adjacent field, most likely after 1830. He was certainly living there by the time of his death in 1834 because his widow claimed the 100 acres as her home farm when she fought her claim for dower rights in early 1835. His parents died between 1833 and early 1834. This is the likeliest time for Anderson's conversion of the log building and construction of the mansion house. Sometime after 1832, and, and more likely 1833, Anderson inserted eight barred windows into the building. He took out whatever windows had been there uh, the glass windows, the transom window, and the house style doors. There are maker's marks on the iron bars from a company in Pittsburgh, and they were not in business before 1832, so it had to have been after that. He drilled holes in the second floor joist and inserted iron rings down the center of the floor. Uh, and in order to tame persons to them. Anderson had dual interests during this period of his life. The only mention of John W. Anderson in local Mason County history books recounts his exploits in horse racing. He raised thoroughbred horses through the 1820s and up to his death in 1834. Anderson also worked to make a name for himself in another business during this time period, He associated with notorious slave dealers such as Edward Stone in the early 1820s. Stone uh, was from Paris, Kentucky, and his slaves killed him in 1826 on an Ohio River flatboat trip down to Natchez. While we cannot prove that Anderson was selling slaves in 1826, he was at least acquainted with those in the business. In fact, Anderson testified in the trial associated with Stone's death. Anderson built up his slave export business through the late 1820s and early 1830s. He became a major local dealer and exporter of humans from Kentucky to the Deep South. His plans probably included further expansion and continued increase of revenue. Anderson made yearly trips to either Natchez or New Orleans between 1830 and in 1833. Enslaved persons, horses, and produce were the product that he transported. In November of 1832, he laid out his business plans in a letter and in a contract for business. He convinced Mason County Friends to search out and obtain enslaved persons for purchase. Thomas Marshall and Garrett Wall were two of those we know who worked with Anderson. Anderson exhorted them to search among their, quote, friends and acquaintances where he was sure they would find slaves for purchase. They were to take them to his farm where his overseer would take care of them. And these are quotes from his letter. And in Wall's case, Anderson sent money and arranged for Wall to transport any enslaved persons to him in Natchez. In three sales between November 1832 In May 1833, Anderson sold over $38,000 worth of persons. In 2020 dollars, that is over a million dollars. Major Lexington slave dealers of the same period only claimed sales in the $5,000 to $8,000 range. Anderson was a major player in the Kentucky to Natchez slave trade during his lifetime. In the meantime, however, he was apparently having problems with escaping slaves. Two young men escaped in 1830, and another in 1831, and four in 1833, at least that many, and we'll come back to this a little bit later. The last four escaped in Natchez and the former in Mason County. Security was probably a continuing issue for Anderson both at home and on the road and probably led to his uh, adding the barred windows onto the slave home. John W. Anderson died suddenly in July 1834, without leaving a will, and we'll come back to that too. His widow, Susan S. Anderson, claimed our rights over the 100 acres on which the slave pen is situated and an adjoining 75. They owned more than 800 acres, and they had to sell the rest. She apparently lived there until her death in 1851, and she is buried with John W. Anderson in the adjacent cemetery. They had at least six daughters, born between 1816 and 1833, four of whom lived to adulthood. Elizabeth Brant Anderson, the eldest daughter, married John T. Brooks in early August, 1834, just two weeks after John W. Anderson's death. Brooks was the Maysville city clerk uh, for most of the uh, second half of the 1830s. In 1843, when their youngest sister of the four remaining sisters was an adult, Elizabeth and John T. Brooks filed a chancery Court suit against her sisters Regarding the 175 acres of land. As a widow, Susan Anderson, of course, did not actually hold title to the land, but held it in dower for her daughters. Mason County Court divided the 175 acres into four parcels, so each surviving daughter had an equal share, and they listed the buildings in each parcel. Mary S. Anderson was the second oldest daughter and still unmarried, and she received the mansion house and associated outbuilding. Presumably, the mother continued to live with her. Elizabeth and John T. received an L-shaped parcel that contained, quote-unquote, Dale House and no other building. They built a home in the southern part of this L-shaped parcel, and that house is still standing. <laughs> Within six months, Elizabeth and John T. Brooks... Sorry, starting that over. Within six months, Elizabeth and John T. Brooks Bought the other three parcels from her sisters, and they all continued to live on the property uh, through uh, 1857. Some of them had died uh, during that time and are buried in the cemetery. In 1857, Elizabeth and John T. Brooks sold the 175 acres to brothers Evan and Oscarander Lloyd. The Lloyd brothers and their descendants lived in the house that the Brooks had built for many generations until the mid 20th century. They built a large outer tobacco barn around the slave pen and used it as a tobacco barn, thus converting the building once again, uh, this time to a barn. According to several local older residents, the barn was not used for tobacco by the mid-20th century, but as a cow barn. Several residents also reported seeing chains hanging from iron rings on the second floor. Others reported an iron cage inside the building. Many stories have been handed down in Mason County over the generations and become part of local folklore. They depicted Captain Jack Anderson as a notorious slave dealer and recorded his ill treatment of slaves. His sudden death was said to have been caused by him on horseback chasing an escaping slave. The slave pen building was definitely used, at least for a few years, to contain enslaved persons against their will. They slept chained to the second floor. With little chance of escape. Anderson moved dozens of primarily teenagers and young adults from Mason County to the Deep South between 18, at least 1830 and 1833. They passed through the building, leaving little physical note of their presence. Let's now look at the enslaved persons who lived in or passed through the farm and the slave pen. In doing historical research on a particular piece of land or building, it's relatively easy to identify the property owner using deeds and other legal documents. Identifying and researching less visible occupants of the property, such as enslaved persons or women or children, especially before eighteen fifty, is much more difficult. The research on the Anderson slave pen and the home farm associated with it attempts to identify these less visible inhabitants and bring them forward as real people, not just as Female slaves 16 to 26, or male slaves 10 to 16, for example. Now, the enslaved people who lived and worked at the site may be divided into two groups of people. First, are the permanent occupants. These people lived on the property, conducted the work of the farm and the household. They would have had permanent housing and may have been born and raised there or brought there as adults. The second type of slave who may have lived uh, on the farm would be those persons destined for the Natchez slave markets or other sales. These persons may have been purchased and brought to the property for temporary housing. They would have been fed in the house somewhere on the farm, whether in the log building or another structure. They may have lived there for several weeks or months, depending on when John Anderson made a trip to Natchez or to New Orleans to sell them. If we go back before Anderson, Moses Frazee in 1800, before he bought the 100-acre tract, owned four enslaved persons based on the Mason County tax list. By the 1807 tax list, Frazee listed no slaves, nor did he own any in the 1810 census. By 1820, the entry for Moses Frazee included three persons, two young men and one young woman, in 1825, Moses Frazee, of course, sold the 100 acres to John W. Anderson, after which Moses Frazee dropped out of Mason County records. Lack of probate or other records makes it difficult to trace enslaved persons who lived on the farm during Frazee's occupation. It has not been possible to find the names of those individuals, unfortunately. John W. Anderson and his family, uh, his parents Warsham and Miss Anaya, for example, they owned slaves both in Virginia and after they came to Kentucky. It's very likely that at least some of those persons made that journey with them from Virginia. Worship and Miss Anderson lived in Virginia in 1810, and in that 1810 census, they list 17 enslaved persons, but the Virginia census does not include any details. In 1820, eight enslaved persons lived and worked on Anderson's previous farm, before he bought this one and a further review of mason county tax records from the 1820s to the early 1830s provides information on age and number of enslaved persons who both anderson and his father worship john anderson owned anywhere between seven and twelve slaves for the period of 1823 to 1831 the 1832 and 33 tax lists were not available during research we can presume that these are the enslaved permanent occupants for the Anderson farm. Warsham ha- Anderson, I'm it ever. in Warsham Anderson. In addition, owned between nine and fifteen persons during the same time period. In the 1830 census, Warsham owned fifteen slaves, while John W. Anderson claimed twelve. Census and tax records provide only minimal information regarding age ranges and gender of slave occupants of any given household. Other resources can provide more detailed information, including names and ages, and in some cases, personal descriptions. In 1830, John W. Anderson placed an advertisement in November 10th, 1830 in the Maysville Eagle for two runaways named John and Jim. John and Jim were described as wearing horse locks on their ankles with attached trace chains. As shackled slaves, they were most likely transient members of the Anderson's farm community. Anderson most likely purchased them with the intent to transport them to Natchez. A court case filed by Anderson regarding a slave transaction dates November 15, 1830, as a date he was on his way to Dover, Kentucky, with, quote, a lot of Negroes, unquote. At Dover, they apparently boarded a flatboat free to Natchez or New Orleans. John and Jim, however, managed to escape in the several weeks before the trip, even though the advertisement describes them as wearing horse shackles. John and Jim very likely spent time on Anderson's farm, and there's no information whether they were caught or made their escape. During that same trip, Anderson had made a deal with a man named James Kempe uh, for Alfred, a young enslaved man. Kempe and Anderson's heirs ended up in court over this, And Alfred apparently started the trip with Anderson and then was sold to Kennedy. It's very likely Alfred spent time on Anderson's farm. During one of Anderson's trips in the spring of 1833, he was in Natchez. And on May 2nd of that year, he filed an advertisement with the Mississippi Journal and the Natchez Advertiser, listing four escaped slaves and offering a reward. These four persons, Carter, Emmanuel, Hannah, and Carolyn may have lived at the farm in Mason County, or he may have purchased them in Mississippi. If they were part of the group of persons transported by flat boat, it's very likely they spent some time on the farm. Probate records, of course, provide a lot more detailed information on uh, enslaved people who lived at well many farms, but this one in particular. Worsham Anderson, John W.'s father, died july eleventh, eighteen thirty three. He wrote in his will that he was going to leave individual enslaved persons to various members of his family. These include a woman named Kitty and Kitty's child, Maria, a man named Willis, and a young girl named Harriet, five men named Jefferson, Howard, Dick, George, and Garrett, three women named Alice, Rose, and Naomi, five boys named Lewis. Jack, Doctor, Frederick, and Charles, and a girl named Nancy. It is very likely that these people lived and worked somewhere on John dumby Anderson's estate. Warsham Anderson directed that none of his estate be sold after his death, so no probate inventory was compiled. His wife inherited everything, but then she died in early 1834. The fate of those people is unknown at this time, because many of them are not listed in John W. Anderson's inventory, which we'll come to in a minute. John W. Anderson died July 22nd, 1834, suddenly enough that he was unable to make a will. He was only 42 at the time of his death and apparently had not written one beforehand, even though he had a complicated estate. As a result, it was entered into the Mason County probate system. Detailed estate inventory, sale lists, and other records documented the disposition of Anderson's estate. People also filed many claims against his estate because he apparently did not like to pay his bills. And these have given us an amazing amount of information, including the letter I discussed earlier. These records list the enslaved persons by name and allow us a glimpse of the individuals who lived and worked and passed through the Anderson farm. A review of the tax records, as we noted before, showed that Anderson never reported more than 13 enslaved persons on any tax record before 1834. The tax book for that year is dated August 1834, a month after he died. His widow Susan's tax record documents 32 people. So it's very likely that most of these were people that he was gathering on the estate in order to sell them later. I will read their names for you now. So here are their names: Simon, Ephraim, William, Fenton, Bob, Washington, John, listed as an epileptic, Phyllis, Melinda and child, Mania and child, Phoebe, Matilda, Maria, Mahala, Joshua. Matt, John Wesley, John Dimity, another Matilda, Mary Jane, Mary Ann, Harriet, Ian, Addison, Amanda, Israel, Hannah, George, America, and Mariah. The probate inventory lists 32 people including several unnamed small children listed with their mothers. Of these persons, all but five were sold during resolution of the estate probate. John, Phoebe, Maria, Mary Jane, and Amanda were not sold, or at least no record of sale has been found. Presumably, they stayed with the widow, Susan S. Anderson. Adding up all of the enslaved persons, including these 32 plus Worsham Anderson, uh, person uh, listed in his probate, and the escaping slaves. This totals 57 people of African descent who very likely lived or were held on Anderson's farm. Some may have been born there and worked on that property most or all of their life. They may have built Anderson's brick house, raised the slave pen to a full two stories, uh, built their own uh, homes and other buildings. It's not likely they built the original log building, which was built by Moses Frazee, probably with assistance from the few people enslaved by him. These early slaves would have worked in the house, but likely lived or slept elsewhere. The enslaved people who worked and lived on Anderson's farm would have participated in and been responsible for much of the work conducted there. Anderson kept a large number of horses, including racehorses. Some of the enslaved people probably worked with the horses and may have served as jockeys, trainers, and stable hands. They would have raised tobacco or hay, possibly corn and other crops for their use and for the market. There probably would have been at least one woman who was uh, the cook for the family as well as for the enslaved people held up on the second floor. To end our discussion, John W. Anderson took a domestic residence including where his parents had most likely lived, and converted it to a jail or pen. The addition of the iron rings, chains, and barred windows altered the building in its history forever. Its original purpose was obscured. It became a prison for the persons he bought from friends and neighbors. He had converted it to a commercial building, a non-personal structure that would become a hidden part of the local landscape and one that engendered many local stories and legends. The building and the archeology span speak to us of domestic activities, of a building in transition, of people's lives and deaths, of the choices people made in their everyday lives. Combined with the historical documentation of Anderson's activities, it is a powerful reminder of the hidden nature of many aspects of our history. It is only the combination of the, all the available avenues of research—archaeology, history, architecture, local legends, and folklore—that provide us with a fuller picture of what life must have been like around the slave pen. Thank you.
0: on this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of the Oldham Chamber and Economic Development Office.